Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an unbelievable conversation to share with you. I just had the honor of speaking with the one and only Richard Kosh. Richard is best known for being a management consultant, entrepreneur, an investor, and the writer of several books including one of my absolute all-time favorites, The 80-20 Principle. Uh, It's a book about how to apply the Pareto Principle in all walks of life. He's written a number of other unbelievable books, including his most recent one, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. Uh, Richard is unique in the sense that the principles that he writes about, he executes in his daily life and is proven with his track record of successful investments and making simple choices and making his investment decisions very as simple and reductionist as possible. I highly recommend his books. I highly recommend applying these principles to your own daily life. And in this conversation, I had the opportunity to ask Richard uh, a few questions about things that I had wanted to know and wish I could have asked him uh, questions all day long, but he is a busy guy. So here is a, let's call it a preview into the world of his philosophy and his works. And I know you'll enjoy, and I encourage you to pick up where this conversation leaves off and dive deeper into his work. So without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Richard Kosh. Hey, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Patrick, and I'm very pleased to be here. So, Richard, for the audience out there who I'm sure they've heard of uh, your books, and uh, we're going to dive into that more in this interview here, but for the audience out there, could you tell them a little bit about your early background and how you got started on this track that you've been on? Uh, certainly I can, but how how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> well, so the, the, the reason I ask uh, that question is because when we look at your, you know, your, let's say your credentials, you know, you're, you're an investor, author, entrepreneur, you look at many of these things. Uh, I focus on the demographic of people who are trying to figure out what to do with their life. And I think in digging through your background, you have a very unique story and a very interesting story where you you know, your upbringing, I think would not, uh, you know, would be very similar to a lot of people who, you know, are are young, sort of trying to figure it out today, and might have a hard time imagining themselves having the same outcome in life that you've been able to experience with by embodying the principles, you know, of your writings and things like that. Well, it's a bit difficult for me to answer that. I I had no doubt that I was going to become rich uh, because at the age of, uh, I've told the story before, so stop me if you think your your, uh, listeners will will not be particularly interested. But at the age of nine, I had a quite a humiliating experience, really unpleasant experience. And I just need to explain this because I think it's quite quite amusing in a way. Um, There was a woman who lived with my auntie. So my father's sister, um, and he had a number of siblings because he was the uh, youngest of 13 children. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and they weren't Catholics either, so it was quite, quite extraordinary. Um, the, um, the aunt concerned, Auntie Louise, lived in a sleepy little town in uh, on the south coast of England where people went to die. Basically, it's one of these places where, where there, there were only what people these days call retirees, which I think is an unfortunate expression. It implies that someone else is doing the retiring and decided that they're, you know, that they should be put, put ready to die. 
anyway, um, this was a sleepy little town called Seaford in England. And we really liked my auntie. She was a very nice woman. But she had one great drawback, which was that she was living as a companion. I really don't know what, what was behind that. Uh, with a, another lady uh, whose name was always called Miss Gates. Her first name was Evelyn, but no one ever called her Evelyn. She was always Miss Gates, despite the fact she'd been married. So, you know, so we'll try and work that one out either. Very, very strange. Uh, and Miss Gates was a dragon. You know, uh, she's safely dead, so I can I can say this a long time ago, I, I presume. And uh, I do not understand how Auntie Louise could possibly fall under the sway of this woman. They had worked together. They were both um, real sort of you know women liberts in a you know today we would we would say that they were feminists because because they had done something that very few women uh, of their age were able to do which is they become very senior in the british civil service so they were senior bureaucrats essentially and when they retired they decided to live together in seaford and so in order to see my auntie I actually had to go and see Miss Gates as well. And my parents and I were terrified of this woman because she was, um, I, I think she was actually malevolent, but may, she may not have been. But anyway, she always tried to humiliate and put down everybody else. And she was very intelligent, so she could do that with great ease. And uh, I remember being terrified just by the fact that I was in a room in Auntie Louise's house and I was writing. One of the things that I've always done from a very young age, and this is probably very precocious in a way, so I would always write things in a notebook. And so I was writing in the notebook, goodness knows what, um, and she came into the room and there was no one else in the room to protect me from this case. It wasn't that she was going to sexually abuse me or anything, but she was... <laughs> He was certainly going to abuse me. Uh, and, uh, and, and she said, Richard, what are you going to do when you grow up? And Patrick, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do when I would grow up. I mean, what nine-year-old kid really can honestly answer that question except frivolously or uh, randomly? And I said the first thing that came into my mind, which was, I'm going to be a millionaire. And Miss Gates said, tut, tut. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. That's not a job. And why can you possibly get rich? Because your father has no money to speak of, and he never will. So how, how are you going to become a millionaire? This is really silly. So tell me what you're going to do. You can be a bus conductor or what, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I, by this stage, I was close to tears. And, 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 but I was very stubborn and petulant. So I said, I want to be a millionaire. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And... She sort of, you know, basically shook her head and, and, and said, the boy has no common sense. And she swept out of the room in a flurry of skirt, as I seem to remember. Um, and having said that, it really made me determined to make money. And it is a ridiculous thing. And I don't actually think that making money is, is all that... Um, well, I, don't, I mean, it's, it's nice to have money, but I don't think as a goal, certainly the goal for a nine-year-old kid... Uh, it was very sensible. But anyway, I stuck to it. And I always believed I was going to make a lot of money. And when I was 13, I started a, um, a little business selling stamps to other school children. And it's something called on approval. You, you put them in a little book and you send them out to people. You'd advertise in comics or whatever. And uh, in those days, people were a lot more trusting than they are now. So you would send these books out with stamps. They weren't particularly valuable, but they were worth something. And then people would take out the stamps that they wanted to keep, and then they'd send you a postal order, effectively a check for the money. So I made a little, made a little bit of money out of that. Uh, I didn't make a fortune. And when I, um, you know, in a couple of years, I stopped doing it, but I did make some money. And then I did other things like, you know, I, 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 I got an aloe vera plant, because I thought, you know, aloe vera was meant to be, you know, I thought it was just a cactus, but apparently, it was, you know, had various medical attributes and all the rest of it. So I started selling 
offshoots from this aloe vera plant. And I discovered that if you watered the plants every day, they actually proliferated enormously. I don't know, I don't know if that, I was just very lucky with the plant that I started with, but I think that is characteristic of aloe vera. So I was selling all these massive cactuses uh, and uh, I made a little bit of money out of that. And then I went off to university and after university, you know, my objective was to get a high paying job. So I said, well, I have to have a first class degree. So how do I get a first class degree? Well, this is where serendipity uh, came in because when I was 19, I was sort of reading a book by the Italian 19th century economist, Alfredo Pareto. Uh, it was basically a book about economics, uh, a study in economics. It was written in French, and my French wasn't very good, so I had, you know, I had to go back with a dictionary the day to make sure that I understood what he was saying. Anyway, he was the guy who originated what we now know as the 80-20 principle. He never used the phrase 80-20, but he was studying incomes, and he noted that uh, there was a regular relationship between the percentage of people who had a certain amount of money and the frequency with which they occurred. So in other words, obviously you'd expect very rich people to be very few, but the relationship was so precise that you could, you could write an algebraic equation to describe it. And he got all data from lots of different countries and he discovered that the data fitted. I mean, the slope would be slightly different, but nevertheless, you could say, and we would say today that 20% of people would have 80% of the money. Uh, the 80-20 principle, that didn't, wasn't actually called the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle until the 1940s or 1950s, as far as I can tell. But um, nevertheless, it was a useful thing. Now, why would I think that was useful? Well, it so happens that at university, the, the degree that you get is entirely dependent on final examinations at Oxford. So I had to write 11 papers for three hours and answer three or four questions per paper. And that determined whether I get a first class degree, second class degree, third class degree, etc. So I wasn't particularly brilliant or clever. I was, I was, I was about an average student, I think. But nevertheless, I thought the key to this is actually to know which questions are going to come up. And I, I said, you know, this, this particular thing that, that Pareto observed probably applies to examination papers. That the, 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 the number of questions that you could answer on each question, on each paper, was about 50, or even more than 50. But I did have a theory that some questions, based on what Pareto had written, would come up more often than others. And it's common sense in a way that the most popular subjects are going to be asked about more often. So I did the research. I got the last 20 years papers and I saw how many questions you would have to, answer, uh, to, to, to study and prepare in order to be able to answer three or four questions. And the answer came back that actually six was the, the minimum number, as long as you chose the right subjects, the ones which came up time and time again. There was always a question, I studied history, there was always a question on the origins of the First World War. There was always a question about the French Revolution, which you know usually was about what happened, why did it happen, and so on and so forth. Uh, there was uh, usually a question about the, the origins of the Second World War. There was a question about the rise of Nazism. There was a question about the rise of communism and so on. So, yeah, obviously it was different from paper to paper, but that, that was a paper that was dealing with 19th and 20th century, 19th, late 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, what they used to call modern history. In, sure. in, uh, it doesn't sound very modern to us. <laughs> anyway, so... I, 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 yeah, and there was a paper on economics, and there was there was a there was a general paper which was the most difficult one to actually predict. Uh, but there was a question about medieval um, history. There was always a question about serfdom. There was always a, a paper about serfdom. Sorry. Uh, so what I did was to prepare six answers for each of these eleven things, which meant that I could cut out a huge swathe of studying, and I just I took a chance because it could have gone wrong. 
But it didn't go wrong. It worked absolutely perfectly. And I got a brilliant degree. And I'm not a brilliant person. I got, you know, I got a, what they call a congratulatory first-class degree, which means I was the second best in the university in history. Uh, and, That's incredible. You know, it, was, it was incredible because I didn't work very hard. But I did prepare very well these particular things. I thought that that was a route. You know, getting a great degree was a route to getting money. I, I, I soon realized that I was wrong about that. <laughs> but, but it didn't matter because I got a good job and I couldn't stand the first job that I had. Uh, so after two and a half years, I jacked it in. And then I got a better paying job. I got someone to pay me twice as much uh, because I don't know. Uh, I, I think I interviewed very well. So that was very helpful. But um and then I hated the second job. So I decided to go off to business school and I went to Warden because that was the, the business school where you didn't have to work that hard as opposed to <laughs> Stanford where you did. So anyway, so I graduated from, from uh, Warden, and I had no qualifications because I studied the things that I was interested in, uh, which did not include finance and did not include general management. Um, but nevertheless, I got an MBA and I interviewed with the Boston Consulting Group and rather surprisingly, they gave me a job. But BCG's thing was we want, we want intellect and I could demonstrate that I had a very, very good degree. I, I didn't do very well on, I can't remember what the thing is called, but you, there was a test you had to take for all of business schools, which involved uh, numeracy and, and uh, how good you were with words and all the rest of it. And I achieved a pretty average score on that. So I was very lucky that I actually had got this very good degree because then people believed that I was very, very clever, which was always never true. Um, and so I got a, a job with the Boston Consulting Group. Unfortunately, they found me out after about three or four years because I couldn't do what they did, which was analysis and, and quantitative and a very heavy duty quantitative analysis. And I'm dyslexic with numbers. At least that's my excuse. Uh, the truth is I'm just not very numerate. And so, you know, they kicked me out basically after four years, but I managed to get a job with an offshoot from BCG called Bain and Company, partly because I, I managed to get an interview with Bill Bain, who had started the company. And it so happened that Bill Bain was a historian and he'd actually done history research. So when, when I was interviewed by him, we talked about history for about an hour. And I thought, you know, this is, this is bizarre. It's completely off the point. Uh, and he's, at the end of that hour, he said, I, I want to hire you. And I, I almost fell off my chair. So, you know, again, luck. And the fact that I think I do interview rather well, uh, but that's personality. That's not intelligence or anything like that. Well, well it's, anyway. it's very interesting to notice just the pattern that you're describing here in, in your you know early sort of momentum and success is that you found a very simple approach and you know applied that principle to get you know exceptional results. Just randomly, I'm I'm uh, from Boston originally, huge history fan myself, and I'm curious just in your you know, with your breadth of knowledge and, you know, understanding of these principles, when you look back at history, when you study, you know, the greats and everything like that, who are, are there any people that stand out to you that you believe understood these principles and exploited them better than anybody else? No, I, I mean, I don't think I do. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I mean, Pareto was absolutely brilliant, but he didn't realize what he'd done. You know, he did. He came up with this theory, which is the age trends principle, which I think is well, it's one of the two principles that I use in all of my decisions. And you're absolutely right. I'm a complete reductionist. You know, I believe with the age trend principle that there are very few things that are important, but they are terribly important and they're the key to everything. I'm a little bit naive in that regard. I think I'm very much like Albert Einstein. Of course, I couldn't work out for toffee, you know, the theory of relativity or whatever. But Einstein had got this belief. Einstein had this belief that, that God was a very mad scientist, basically. God had planted secrets in nature and in the observable world, which told you what was going on. And so he, he believed very strongly that there was an answer to the question of relativity and he could find it and and i think part of the part of the reason that certain people in life are very very successful 
is not that they're terribly clever. And in fact, everyone talks about Einstein and it's a, it's a cliche, you know, oh, I'm no Einstein or I am an Einstein or whatever. Well, Einstein wasn't an Einstein because actually his, his academic record was poor. He went to the second best school, university rather, uh, in Zurich. And, uh, and he came bottom of his class effectively. <laughs> and when he was trying to work out his theories of relativity, he relied on his uh, girlfriend, who was very good at mathematics, or math as you call it in America, uh, and uh, and he wasn't. He sums he, like he wasn't as hopeless as I am, but he wasn't very good uh, at. Uh, and, but what he was good at was intuition and thought experiments, and imagining himself traveling on a ray of of light and so, and so on. And that's very, very unusual. But the thing about Einstein was he knew there was an answer. And if you know that there's an answer, then you, it, your chances of finding it are hugely improved. You, there are all these examples where one scientist like Darwin comes up with a theory of evolution at the same time that someone else comes up with almost exactly the same theory. And it's a race between them as to who's going to be able to publish it first and therefore gets all the credit. Um, there is, you know, once people believe that they can do something, then they can do that. I mean, I, another story which I, which I absolutely adore is the one about Steve Jobs uh, going to Xerox Labs in California and seeing the prototype for a modern computer. You know, in the old days, computers had to have, you know, weird instructions and you had these punch cards that you had to put in. Yes. And it didn't make any sense at all. It was sort of, you know, basically you, the, all this code had to be right. And it was completely inaccessible because it didn't make any sense. It was just a bunch of numbers and, and um, letters and so on and so forth. So, you know, the guys in the boffins in the, in the lab had actually worked out how to do what effectively was a, an early version of Windows so that you could actually see things on the screen and you could do things like, you know, drop a, uh, a file into a folder and you could see it on the screen, you know. A graphical user interface. Yeah, a GUI, yes, exactly. Uh, and I don't know anything about computers either. So, so you know, I'm, this is a very much a layman's ex explanation. And, you know, he... Um, basically believed that the people uh, he saw, he had this display for, for him. And the reason that they were interested in Steve Jobs was because um, he wasn't talking to the corporate people or to the scientists, essentially. But he, he had said that Apple wanted to make an investment in the lab. And so in order to do that, they were allowed to go and talk to uh, the scientists. And the scientists basically didn't want to reveal anything about what they were doing. But he was sufficiently bright and his team were sufficiently close to the, you know, they were trying to do what the Xerox people had done. Anyway, they believed, Steve Jobs and his um, colleagues believed that Xerox had solved one of the biggest problems, which was actually how you smoothly scroll from one window to another. It's a little bit like cartoons, you know, in the old days. Yeah. You know, you make a cartoon by very fast switching of the thing and it, it appears to be seamless. And uh, they believed that they had uh, solved the problem of getting rid of jerky interfaces between one, one uh, document and another, or one page of a document and another. And, and so when they went back to the Apple headquarters. They, they worked on that and said, because the boffins at Xerox had solved this problem, and we are just as bright as the boffins in, in, uh, in Xerox labs, we can solve this problem. And they solved the problem. The interesting thing is that the boffins had not solved the problem. It was just a belief on Jobs' part and his colleagues that it could, it could be done. And they did it. Uh, and, and, you know, there are so many examples of Yeah, I, I love that story. And, and one of the interesting things about that, if I remember correctly, is they showed Steve Jobs a number of different technologies that they were working on at the time. But he noticed immediately that the graphic user interface was the highest leverage, the most exciting by far. He barely remembered the rest of the 
the rest of the tour because of how it, 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 passionate he was about that one person you know he didn't know yes, it he was exactly absolutely yeah. 80, 20. he had an instinct for what was important and actually as a historian that's what historians do because there is no such thing as you know as history you know it's all absolutely. what you collect and what you focus on so, which is why nowadays people are focusing on, on ridiculous things, in my view. I'm oh, a gay yes. person. Uh, but, I'm with you. But, 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 you know, all this stuff about you know, gay studies and all the rest of it is complete bullshit. You know, there is no such thing that's useful about that. But we select it and, we, uh, and so we're, we're looking at it. You may disagree with me on that particular example. But, but you know, I, it's, all, it's all about focus. What are you going to focus on? And for a long time, history was all about kings and queens and all the rest of it. And then, you know, people had this idea that there was such a thing as social history. Marx came up with another classic oversimplification, which was the idea that, that the history is the history of classes. And there were three classes. There was feudal um, aristocracy, there were the peasants, and there were the workers. And basically the workers were people in factories and they didn't build factories on any scale until the late 18th century with the Industrial Revolution. And so he had this theory that you moved from feudalism to capitalism, where capitalism was basically running factories and capital determined the allocation of resources. And in the future, you'd move to socialism. And it was inevitable that you moved to socialism because there were more workers than there were capitalists. <laughs> so so it's it, it, totally brilliant, but completely wrong. Uh, and not completely wrong, because the transition from cap uh, feudalism to capitalism existed, and the transition from capitalism to something that was, you know, democracy, if you like, uh, you know, was, was necessarily true. But it didn't follow that that was going to be socialism, but that was the way that he wanted to write the story. And, you know, the narrative was compelling because no one had come up with a theory like that. I mean, one of the most brilliant documents in the world, you ask a big question, who, has, who do I admire for simplification or, or for, you know, coming up with something which is so powerful? That, you know, it's a communist manifesto, which was written by Marx, and he gave Engels a, a credit for it, but Engels never wrote it. That was in 1848. And it's about the size, it's about 5,000 words, I think. It's the size of a chapter in a normal book. So it's totally and amazingly brilliant. The fact that it's, most of it's right, but the critical thing is wrong, is kind of in a way, well, it's, it's relevant, but it's also irrelevant because it was so persuasive. And out of that, you know, you got a body of people who were very, very few people who were dedicated communists, of, of whom the most practical was Vladimir Lenin. And Lenin then decided that he was going to cause a communist revolution because it was inevitable that it would succeed. And he really believed it was inevitable. He had a little problem because the Marxist theory was that that the communist revolution would happen in the most advanced industrial countries, such as Germany and the United Kingdom and America, the United States. Um, and it wouldn't, definitely wouldn't happen in somewhere like Russia, which was extremely backward. But then Lenin had got, you know, that was a inconsistency, which Lenin managed to get around by, you know, some sleight of hand. Um, Lenin's theory was very simple. Because Russia was an autocracy, there were no middle class, you know, there's no effective middle class. There were middle class people, obviously there were doctors and teachers and, and professors and even scientists, but, but they didn't have any political power whatsoever. Uh, Russia was run politically by 2,000 people who were the czar and all the people who were the czar's trusted uh, colleagues, most of whom were policemen or secret policemen. <laughs> anyway, so, but these people, you know, ran Russia, a vast country, hundreds of millions of people. And um, so his theory was, was, was that if the czars could do it with 2,000 people, why not us, meaning the Bolsheviks? Mm. So he believed that if he had a disciplined cadre, of people who would literally die for him if necessary uh, and uh, who were prepared to go and shoot anybody that he told them to shoot, 
uh, they could take over Russia. And that's exactly what happened in 1917, exactly. Yeah. Now, admittedly, he was very lucky because the First World War had happened and Russia had to withdraw from that because it was, you know, basically it exhausted the country and so on and so, so forth. But, you know, it was a theory which he had, which was very reductionist and very persuasive. And, I, you know, I, I almost think the theory doesn't have to be true to work, but I, I, you know, being a rather naive person, I prefer my theories to be true as well. And Certainly. so in my life, I've been looking for the theories that work in a particular sphere. And so in business, you know, I'm sure the 80-20 thing is absolutely crucial. You know, there is nothing more important in business than product line profitability, for example, which which rests on the idea that 20% of products are probably accounting for 80% of profits. 20% of customers are probably accounting for 80% of profits. It, it, it may not be customers. It may not even be products. It may be channels of distribution. But something is wrong with the system, which says that, that you know, in any particular dimension, a few things are very important and most things are not. So find out what the few things are. You know, in my career, yeah. all I've done in business is identify, well, two things. One is identify which are the 20% of segments, not, you know, whether they're customers or products or channels of distribution or geographical countries or whatever, uh, that actually account for the vast majority of profits in cash. And they're always there. They're not obvious, but you know. But you can get to it. You don't have to be particularly clever. As Absolutely. As, as long as you follow the rules. And the other thing in business, which you know, I believe is so brilliant that you know it deserved a, a Nobel Prize was the BCG gross share matrix, which divided, as you know, the world into four quadrants. Again, vast oversimplification. High growth markets on one axis, high or low, and on the other axis how big you were relative to the next largest competitor in the segment the competitors who actually did pretty much the same thing that you do, had the same business system and the same business formula. So, uh, you know, having knowing that, what Bruce Henderson discovered and his colleagues discovered around 1976 was that the vast majority of the cash and profits in any company were made in the star quadrant. And yet there were only very few businesses in the star quadrant. So, you know, if you understood that, you knew that you had to have a high growth business and you needed a high growth market and you needed to dominate that business and be much larger than any other competitor. And if you did that, you'd make a fortune. Well, that's what I've done. You know, I mean, I have invested in star businesses for the last 37 years and I've compounded my money at 22% on average every year. And I've, you know, I've, invest, I've invested in about, you know, 40 companies, only about half a dozen, which are really important. But only one of those companies has gone bust in venture capital. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Now, it and just doesn't happen. And why do I find these companies? It's not because I'm clever. It's because I'm following a bloody rule, which is so reliable. Uh, and nobody else does it. Nobody well, else. Makes, it's my only criterion when I'm considering an investment, you know, and it's just as well because I, you know, I can't even read a balance sheet properly. You well, know? it's amazing. It's amazing to simplify to that degree yeah, and to find exactly. this law that exists in nature. You mentioned exactly. how Einstein, you know, sort of recognized patterns and, you know, could sort of connect the dots because he knew the answer existed. You're utilizing that same strategy by knowing that the 80-20 rule exists. It is a real thing and that it's, it's true so that by following it, you'll get those results as opposed to, you know, like the, the pattern that was uh, what Marx predicted with, you know, the transition to socialism, you know, we see how socialism played out. It was not true. It was persuasive, but uh, you know, it, it can be effective even if it's not, uh, if it's not a good effect. Uh, but yes, that's, it's, it's truly unbelievable to see that sort of application be so, so successful for you. And you know, really unwavering, uh, regardless of the circumstances. Yeah. Are there, you mentioned that there was two things that come to your mind when you're making a investment decision. One was the 80, 20 principle. What's the other one? Uh, the other is the star principle. So that this matrix, just the fact that you invest in star businesses and you make sure that you are as dominant as possible because you make far more money if you're dominant than if you don't, you're, 
not only because you're bigger, but also because the return on capital is much higher. So I, I invented something called the bananagram, which was an extension of the 80-20 of the, um, principle. And it's called a bananagram because it, it, it basically goes from with the peculiar way that BCG goes, where instead of going from left to right, it goes from right to left. So the relative market share is on one axis, and the return on capital is on the other, sort of the, the bottom axis, the x-axis is, is actually the relative market share. So what I did was to then draw a, a parallel curve in the line. And in those days, we used Letraset to, um, to color the things, and, and we had yellow Letraset. So I put the Letraset, you know, I put a yellow pattern in the middle of it. And so my folks called it the bananagram because it looked like a banana, it was the same color as a banana, same shape as a banana. So what that said is that, is that you, you make vastly greater return on capital, the greater your relative market share, which is your size relative to the largest competitor or the, the next largest competitor, which is really what you want. And um, so therefore, if you're, let's say four times larger than the next largest company in your segment doing your type of business, um, don't stop there. You know, you want to be eight times. And if you get if you get eight times, you know that your return on capital is going to go up. It goes up in a linear, not a, not a semi-log fashion. But nevertheless, it goes up in that fashion. We had this chart. And, and every segment that we analysed in the whole of our consulting history, we looked at the relative market share and the return on capital. And we observed that about two thirds of all observations fell within this band. Um, and uh, the interesting thing was the exceptions because, you know, no rule is 100% is, is watertight. Uh, I rejoiced in the exceptions because what I was able to prove was that if a business had got high profitability but low relative market share, it was very vulnerable. Uh, and I always used to say, well, that business, if it if it is vulnerable, could fall down into the um, into the what, what we call the normative band or the banana, and uh, therefore, instead of making fifty percent return on capital, it could actually even be loss making. Um, and uh, lo and behold, that tended to happen. You know, it could be because there was a larger competitor that had higher prices or lower costs, and they were making an absolute fortune. But when they started to lose market share, they then reacted and they dropped their price or they put more into marketing or they um, designed a new product, which was better or any, any reason. They got the money to do it. They were totally dominant. Uh, even more interesting were the cases where uh, a business was in a dominant position, but not making much money. And I used to love that when I found that out from clients. People would say, well, that disproves your theory. I said, no, it doesn't. I tell you, as a matter of dogma, I would say, I tell you as a matter of dogma that this business can make 50% return on capital, 80% return on capital, whatever the number is, given its relative market share position. I just drew a line from the relative market share position up to the top of the banana. And uh, people would say, well, that's all very well. You know, can you prove that? And I said, well, I can't prove it statistically, but I do know I've observed this in, I don't know, I started off having observed it in one case, but then I, over time I'd observed it in hundreds of cases, actually. And so I said, every single time I say to the managers, you can get that up there. So what do you need to do to get it up there? What you need to do is either raise price or you cut your costs or you just come up with a much better product than you've got at the moment. Um, and... Every time I said that, they did it and it went up. You know, it was infallible. It was infallible from a combination of having some data, but also, and this ties back to the earlier discussion that we had of believing that you can do it. You know, I just said, you know, you can do it. So you work out how to do it. And I'm telling you, you will do it. And they did. So, I mean, it's partly, I suppose, kids' psychology, but it was also the fact that if you are in a dominant position, Bloody hell, you ought to have lower costs because you can spread your overheads at yeah. least. 
over a greater volume of product. And if you are the most popular product, you ought to be able to raise your prices. You ought to be able to have a higher price than other people like Apple does, you know. So, so, you know, and maybe there were particular reasons why that wasn't, wasn't true in some circumstances. But usually it was the fact that they'd become very bloated, that the, the companies were relying on the fact that they got this dominant position and they didn't have to try very hard and they didn't have to work very hard to innovate. They didn't have to bring out new products. Uh, they, you know, they were better than the other people. They weren't, but they weren't necessarily very good and people would not necessarily pay a huge amount of money for them. Yeah. Uh, but in my, in my view, if you aren't dominant in the market and really have something which is, well, incomparable, you know, 10 times better or infinitely better, than your competitors, where well, you should be able to charge a very, very high price, and it works, Patrick. It's, you know, what? these things are not—they're not, you know—they're not complicated. Yeah, you keep it simple. Well, what, yeah. what advice would you have for a company that is uh, in the process of trying to take over as much market share as possible, get into that dominant position? You know, because a lot of companies are entering, you know, especially in like the tech space or anything like that. It's highly competitive, and there's, you know, you have to sort of move the giants away, you know? Yeah. Well, essentially, I've written a book called Simplify, and the thesis behind that is that there are two completely opposite ways of improving your position. One way, which I call price simplifying, is to dramatically change the business model so that you can have costs which are at least 50% lower. And, you know, I've got all these examples, starting with Henry Ford, where, you know, over 10 years, he reduced the cost of an automobile by something like 10 times, actually. So a, a car used to cost, you know, to make in those days, um, about $2,000 or something like that. But it could actually be made for $200. You, you wouldn't get there in one leap, but, you know, I mean, it, it involved doing things like, you know, changing the materials that you bought. Uh, it involved um, having a moving assembly line, which was not original. To him, the assembly line had been stolen from another industry. I can't remember which one it was now, but but you know it was it was um, a proven thing. Building the biggest factory in the world, not just the biggest car factory, and because Henry Ford believed that he wanted to ultimately have a car which could be bought by um, skilled workers anyway, then it had to be you know, reduced by 10 times. Because in, in his day, when he started out, cars were absolute luxury items. So only people who were very, very wealthy had a car. And they were usually people who were terribly interested in, in the cars as well, mechanically. They were people who, you know, not your typical image of a, a rich person as being a, you know, hopeless fool. You know, they, these were people who were, you know, they, they wanted to tinker around with the cars. They wanted to fix them when they went wrong and, and, and so on. So, you know, you had those people. But he said, I want to build a car for the multitude. I want to build a car that you don't need to know anything about cars in order to drive. And people said, it's ridiculous. You know, all, the whole market is actually rich people who do know how to, who do yes. want to know, who do want to, you know, get under the hood and look at the car and so on. But, uh, you know, Ford proved his point. You know, for years, the travel industry was appealing with, you know, all the old posters from British Airways or Pan Am or whatever. But always, it was sort of selling glamour and sex and it was targeted at rich people. You know, the idea that, you know, relatively average people might travel on an airplane would have been seen, seen absolutely ridiculous in 1950. And yet then you got, you know, a few mavericks, like the guy who, who started Southwest Airlines, you know, who, who turned that on its head and said, what do I need to do to reduce the cost of a ticket by 10 times? And of course, there are things that you can do. You know, you, you buy all the planes so that they're all the same and you get a huge discount. You only go um, from one place to another. You don't have connecting hubs and, and, and all the rest of it. So basically, uh, you don't need to uh, send people's bags to, to wherever. You use secondary airports, which are much cheaper than primary airports. You train your staff very well so that you get a 10 minute turnaround of the, of the aircraft. 
You know, you don't provide meals, you don't provide free drinks, you don't provide lounges. You know, you basically keep it all extremely simple and you reduce it to the lowest possible cost consistent with safety and actually getting people there. Um, and, you know, so a whole industry has grown up now. And, you know, Southwest Airlines, I think, is the most profitable airline in the world. It's not the biggest, you know. So it, it can be done. So what price simplification is one way that you can do it. The opposite way is the Steve Jobs way of saying, we're going to make something which is so insanely great that, that you know, people will pay a lot of money for it and other people won't be able to make it. Well, you know, of course there's another company that can make iPhones or the equivalent of an iPhone smartphone today. But initially that was true. And, you know, it's still true. I think that the, you know, this Apple product, which I've got here, which even I can use, you know, um, to do <laughs> just amazing things. Um, you know, it's ease of use. It's making it extremely useful. And it's also the beauty of the thing. You know, this is, this is really beautiful. I love this. Truly. Um, it's a revolution. And, you know, I wonder what would have happened if we didn't have Steve Jobs' artistic abilities uh, influencing our technology. Exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, he was he was another weird, weird guy who who wasn't actually, unlike Bill Gates, he actually couldn't design a piece of software to save his life. But what he did do was to say, you know, what do people want? So when they designed the um, the iPod originally, they, they, you know, they had all these M, M3, uh, MP3 products, but they thought that they, they, all of them sucked because, you, you know, you could only put 200 songs on or something like that. And uh, they kept breaking down and, uh, you know, it took a long time to, to actually get the thing to go. And actually, even the first iPod was actually, you remember that circular thing that you had to... That was yeah. beyond me. I could never get the hang of that. But but enough people did. To, and then, of course, they made it simpler and they made it uh, they made it uh, more versatile. You know, you you know, and eventually you got the iPhone, which is really you know a combination of the iPod and the iPad. Which is, yeah, anyway. So the, the whole thing was totally brilliant. But it, it took a lunatic like Jobs, uh, who also his business style, you know, his management style was completely unreasonable. I mean, he would insult his people. He would bully them, but he was a very unusual bully. He bullied the strong, not the weak. And he managed to, you know, if you could survive jobs, you could do amazing things because he had this reality distortion field and, and all the rest of it. That again, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, if you believe, whether you believe you can do something or not, you're right which I think I Henry Ford, Henry Ford himself. Yeah. Said, said that. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely true. And he managed to persuade these people that they could do miracles and they did do miracles. You know? So that's the other way, you know, that you make something which is hugely better uh, and you charge a lot of money for it. Well, I appreciate Not many people can do that. that. Yes. It's, uh, it's so, you know, quite difficult. And I appreciate you answering that question. It's a sort of a selfish question because I'm in that position with my business uh, personally. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to get your take on it. And um, which way are you going to go? Are you going to be a price simplifier or a proposition simplifier? Which is you know, term. I think uh, so. I'm in the solar industry. So we, you know, we, uh, I think technology would be on the, you know, in the future trajectory to develop, you know, sort of a uh, our own customs uh, hardware and such. Uh, but I think right now the, the way to go is price simplification. Okay. Well, that's, that is easier. I mean, it's, it's, you have to be totally ruthless and it's not particularly easy, but uh, at least, you know, where you, your, your objective is to cut the price in half and then you work out how to do it. Uh, it's not it's not that easy, but it's a lot easier than making an iPhone, for example. Certainly, yeah. Uh, developing new magical technology is always going to be, you know, that's something divine in that nature. But to uh, stake a claim as I'm going to cut my costs in half, I think uh, solving that problem is a lot easier than the creative process of bringing new right. technology into the world. Patrick, I very much enjoyed our conversation. I've overrun my time. I'll give you one more question if it's a, a quick one. I, a sure. Quick one. I, I truly appreciate your time today. I could ask you questions probably for an eternity. But Richard, tell me, what is the thing that you're 
you know, when, when you apply your principles to the modern world, what is the technology industry movement that you're most excited about that you're seeing uh, sort of capture momentum right now? I'm going to pass on that question because uh, the honest answer is I do not know. And actually, I don't care very much uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I know what, I, I could never, ever do what Steve Jobs did either. And I wouldn't want to do what Henry Ford and the, uh, and the budget airlines and Ikea and all the price simplifiers do either because it's very hard work. <laughs> All I, all I do is just invest in these companies and, and somehow magically their value increases because they're start businesses. So I just want to keep doing something like that. And uh, for my creativity, I reserve that uh, as a low level of creativity, perhaps for my books. So I like writing books. Uh, but you know, well, I, know how, I know how to make money and it's rather nice, actually. Well, I love your books. I recommend them to absolutely everybody. I think uh, I, I like that answer as well. Uh, true to your core. And Richard, you're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for your time today. And I really am excited for, you know, whatever uh, uh, new books you, you publish. Okay, Patrick, that's great. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. And you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.